Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promoting for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hi, this is Marion Bartoli. I'm Mats Villander. This is Mary Carrillo. I'm Stan Wawrinka. I'm Leighton Hewitt. I'm Andy Murray. Hi, I'm Lucy Holtz. Hi, I'm Henry Holtz. We're from Brooklyn, New York. And, and you're, you're listening, listening to the Tennis Podcast. Thank you, Lucy and Henry from Brooklyn. What a fantastic intro. If we've ever had a better intro than that. I mean, we had exquisite, didn't we, with the other week? But come on, Catherine, that was pretty good, wasn't it? Yeah, I loved that. We're going to be out of jobs soon, by the sounds of things. Splendid job, Lucy and Henry. Um, also, would like to just say hello to Pauline in Washington as well, and Sally Ann, who said the mo- sent us the loveliest emails in the last couple of days uh, that have really uh, given us a, a boost. And uh, just, just you know, wish them the best and wish all of you the best out there as you. Uh, Find your route through lockdown wherever you are in the world. And we're here to keep you company here on the Tennis Podcast once more. We've got loads of plans for the coming weeks. Uh, And today we are going back in time because it is tennis relived time once again. We're going to be going back to 1986 and the Fed Cup final between Martina Navratilova and Hannah Mandrakova. An incredible story that is that we'll tell you all about. Uh, We'll also go back to 1995 with Boris Becker taking on Thomas Muster in Monte Carlo because it would have been Monte Carlo final weekend yesterday and it would have been Fed Cup finals weekend yesterday uh, but of course not to be however we are going to be reliving those classic matches first though let's just catch up on a little bit of the news since we were last with you and there's been plenty of it Labour Cup has been cancelled but tennis is restarting domestically it seems at the moment because there has been an exhibition set up in Germany reports uh, Simon Briggs in which Dustin Brown is going to be taking part the Rafael Nadal Academy is proposing to use itself as a campus in which uh, some of the players can stay and compete against each other and this morning I saw Patrick Moritogalu on Five Live Breakfast uh, on BBC Radio over here in the UK talking about the ultimate tennis showdown in which uh, David Goffin, Benoit Paire and Alexander Poprin are going to take part um, with all sorts of considerations given to the fact that uh, social distancing needs to be employed still and they're going to have just a single chair umpire they're going to have a system for the balls so that they don't use the same ones um and uh, yeah we'll find out whether that actually 
works. I've got mixed feelings on the ultimate tennis showdown. I can see that players are struggling, people in tennis and in all sports and all walks of life are just desperate to get started again, but it feels pretty early to me it, to, to be talking about this particular initiative. It's um, it's mid-May that it's going to take place. Um, I applaud the entrepreneurial attitude and an instinct and the desire to, to do something that can help create some business for, for tennis and tennis players and put something on TV screens. But And yes, I, I take on board everything Patrick's saying about uh, all the the sort of considerations they will give to keep people at a safe distance. But given that the ATP have cancelled tennis and WTA have cancelled tennis until mid-June and that Wimbledon's not taking place and no tennis is taking place, yeah, it it feels a little bit um, uncomfortable to me to be talking about starting something up ahead of time. I don't know what you think. Yeah, it feels incredibly premature. I mean, I know we should probably be celebrating the prospect of tennis, any tennis, but A, I don't have any confidence at all that that this event will will actually happen. Um, B, you know, tennis, when, when it does return, I don't want it to be, you know, as, as much as, you know, the entrepreneurial effort is, is good, as you say. I don't want it to be entrepreneurial individuals grabbing at opportunism that gets tennis back up and running again I want it to be a coordinated cohesive effort um, and decision making process in terms of what's the best way to get the show back on the road and three I don't think there's anything ultimate about watching David Goffin against Alexi Popperin well, you can't players, call it. Yeah. You can't call it an ultimate showdown. I'm sorry. I know by that, but I know I'll probably be glued to it because it will be professional sport. But you can't call Goffin, Goffin against Popperin the ultimate showdown. It's the ultimate showdown when there's nothing else, I suppose. <laughs> it's the only showdown. <laughs> yeah, that word you used there, Catherine, opportunistic. It, it did. It does feel a bit like that to me from Moratoglu's point of view, reading something that he wants to involve in this competition, which is to have um, players able to express their emotions more freely than ever before, because there, be, there won't be the same code of conduct that there is on the ATP and WTA Tour. And I know that's something that Moratoglu has talked about before as wanting to bring into tennis. It feels like he's kind of using that for his own end a little bit to to kind of experiment with something he wants to see um seems one of his motives i don't know just make that that made me a little bit uncomfortable he was at pains to say that uh, the money that is generated will go to the players playing it or at least most of it um so you know creates an income for them although i don't think david goffin and benoit pair are exactly short of a few quid um alexi popperin may be differently um 100 in the world he is i must um, have missed the just giving page where i could donate to the cause of benoit pair <laughs> uh, yeah i'm sure it may, maybe it's out there um for the beard for the beer beard cultivation um but the uh, no, I, I take the point. Um, on the subject of relief for tennis players generally, this has come up over the last week as well. Reported by John Wertham of Sports Illustrated, he revealed details of a letter that Novak Djokovic had written. He's the president of the ATP Players Council to all the players, in which he was proposing a support 
package for players ranked 250 in the world to 700 in the world. And he says in his letter that the ATP had been talking about something similar for players ranked 150 to 400, but that Djokovic, Rafael Nadal and Roger Federer had spoken and they proposed that it should be more... Uh, more depth to that in terms of lower down the rankings help given they're hoping that the grand slams and the tours also contribute to the fund and what they're proposing from a player's perspective is that those ranked one to five in the world will pay thirty thousand dollars each five to ten i guess that should be six to ten uh, would be twenty thousand dollars each then 11 to 20 15 and so on down the rankings to the hundred ranked player in the world donating five thousand with the hope, ultimately, that would be just over a million dollars created with top 20 doubles players putting $5,000 in each. They're hoping that Grand Slams would give half a million each and at the ATP as well and to eventually raise four to four and a half million dollars to enable them to give $10,000 each to players ranked 250 to 700 in the world. They've also talked about wanting to donate 50% of the prize money at the World Tour Finals in London, if it happens at the end of this year, to the Player Relief Fund, as they're calling it, and also a, a, a chunk of the money out of the prize money at the Australian Open, if that event doesn't happen at the ATP Finals, so that they can create a pot of money. What is your reaction to those proposals? I mean, my, my first instinct is good on them for actually being assertive to try to do something for the good off their own back and create some money that can be used further down the line by those that are really struggling. We heard from uh, Liam Brody. We heard from Sophia Shafatava as well, talking to Catherine a couple of weeks ago of the struggles for players ranked in the two, three, four hundreds and below. Um, I do feel that the the amounts that they they're talking about there need some further consideration. I would have thought really because there are players ranked low down in that number, fifty to one hundred, paying five thousand each, and as you go down to that level, they're they're not making that much money. Whereas Djokovic, Nadal, and Federer, they make you know they're talking they've earned a hundred million each in their careers now. I don't think it's absolutely on them to to put all the money in, but uh, maybe that needs to be thought through a little further. What what, uh, what are your immediate reactions? Well, I think it's very difficult to create the perfect system, and I think it's a very honourable gesture that they've that they've come up with this off their own back, and I think it's definitely a good thing. But I do think it probably needs some refining, as you said. There's there's, there's players certainly in the top hundred who wouldn't be able to pay a coach at the moment and are now being asked to chuck in 5,000. Um, I just had a quick look down the rankings. There are players in the top 100 such as Jean-Luca Maget, Sunwoo Kwon, Hugo Delien, Salvatore Caruso, Attila Balash, who are not, who have just quite recently got into the top 100 and they're then possibly not going to be in a financial situation that some people in that 250 to 700 ranking range will actually be in because they've just slipped down the ranking despite having a good career. Someone like Jack Sock is in there, Misha Zverev, um, Thomas Bellucci, you know, so I don't think ranking is actually an accurate 
representation of wealth necessarily and of your financial status it it roughly works and i think they've got a template there but something that needs to be thought through a little bit more and refined a little bit more so that the money's going to the people who need it from the people who can afford it yeah i mean there's no doubt that the 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 tiering and the 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 details of what's being proposed aren't aren't right they don't feel right they are it's a a very very blunt instrument that's being proposed i i sort of love the fact that (laughs) kind of every uh aid package that i've seen proposed uh, andy murray is eligible for uh to receive the benefits of with being ranked 120 something in the world um but i'm wary of the 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 pylon that we keep seeing um against uh, elite athletes we've seen it with premier league footballers i'm not saying they're not um eligible for for some criticism at all but um just cuz this isn't exactly the right thing doesn't mean that the thought process and the the sentiment behind it isn't the the right one um it's it's a balance like on one hand i don't want them to be held up and lauded as uh, saintly individuals just because they're proposing anything because um, I think that's sort of natural human instinct and they are in a in a very privileged position to be able to do so but I also don't think there should be a big pile on um, and huge wave of criticism just because oh they're they're multi 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 millionaires and only offering 30,000 um, I think a reaction, a nuanced reaction somewhere in the middle is appropriate. But yeah, there's no doubt. I mean, I think there are probably doubles players around about 20 in the world that that need help. There, there mm. are no way in a position to be able to chuck in, chuck in five grand, not comfortably anyway. Yeah. So, Incidentally, John Millman, ranked 43 in the world, tweeted, if the concern is to help players ranked 250 to 700 in the world, why has it taken a global pandemic to realise this? Surely over the many years of top-end heavy prize money increases, we maybe should have distributed the spread a little more, which uh, which is an interesting point. And, uh, and yeah, it's yet another example of something of this significance perhaps causing pause for thought and maybe things will change as a result of it um the other bit of news that uh, we had in overnight it was from a facebook live session that novak Djokovic took part in with some other serbian tennis players and he is reported to have said that he opposes vaccination and if vaccination is required in order to return to the tennis circuit well he's going to have a problem with that we haven't heard all the details of it. He has said uh, reportedly as well, this was via translation, I should add, that uh, if that is insisted upon, he's going to have a decision to make. But we await clarification of exactly what his issue with the with the vaccine would be. So those are the little news items that have come up over the the last few days. should also say that Labour Cup has been cancelled over the last week for this year and put back to 2021 also in Boston. I think that's a sensible decision. Uh, But what we're going to do in the absence of tennis to look forward to in the immediate future, we're going to look back once again and go into the archives with Tennis Relived. The first of the matches we're going to talk about 
comes from the Fed Cup finals in 1986. It was the Czech Republic against, it was Czechoslovakia, I should say, against the United States of America. Martina Navratilova returning to Czechoslovakia, her country of birth, with the United States to play against Hanna Mandlikova and all the other Czechoslovakian players. Um, 1986, Catherine, it was July... Ronald Reagan was the president of the United States. Uh, a lot had happened, a lot of tragedy that year. A nuclear reactor exploded in Chernobyl. The Challenger space shuttle disaster happened. The Oprah Winfrey show first aired. That wasn't one of the disasters, but that did happen. Um, the Phantom of the Opera was first staged. Lady Gaga, Usain Bolt, and a certain Raphael Nadal were born, as was Catherine Whitaker. I will never get enough of the way you've just said Lady Gaga. I feel like that's the first time you've ever said it, David. <laughs> that is definitely... <laughs> Have I got that wrong? You've definitely never said it to other people before. <laughs> what did I say? Did I say it like a baby says it? <laughs> yeah, I, I'm not really up Dave, to uh, David, with popular culture, you, What's the name of the famous Queen song? Radio... Gaga. All oh, right, okay. See? So, tell you. Right. That's how, Brummies, that's how Brummies say it, folks. Tell you. People from Birmingham, okay. we say Lady Gaga is what we say. All right? So, Anyways, big are. year for birds. I said it again. Is, is the wider point. Big year for, <laughs> for birds of, of great people. Yeah. Yeah, <clears throat> it was indeed. Uh, so, do, uh, take it you don't remember anything about 1986, then, do you? No. I'm sure my no. parents do, because obviously it was, you know, the most magical year of their lives. Um but I remember nothing, nor does Matt. No, Matt, Matt was some years away from having been thought of. Uh, I was uh, a teenager, and it was a few years before I turned into a lazy git. Um, at Wimbledon... <laughs> at, uh, yeah, you Wimbledon, were quite sweet-looking in 1986. As a, and I mean, sort of like as of, of to... around about average height, also. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. Uh, so, yeah, that, that was 1986. At Wimbledon earlier in the month of July, Boris Becker had defended his title aged 18. Martina Navratilova won her seventh Wimbledon title uh, in the singles. She'd won, obviously, many doubles titles as well, beating Hannah Mandlikova in the final. And it's the rematch that took place later that month in Prague that we watched together on Saturday night. We're going to hear from Pam Shriver, Martina's doubles partner, in a minute. Uh, but first, Catherine, give us a little bit of background to the, the tie and why it was so significant generally. Yeah, well, obviously, 1986, we're, I mean, it's to, very much towards the end of the Cold War, but it's still very much the depths of... Uh, of Iron Curtain territory in Czechoslovakia was uh, very much a part of that and um, the athlete defections from nations behind the Iron Curtain were were, were pretty common um, and I think sort of the the whole context and, and texture of all that is uh, very well summed up by um, a couple of s statements uh, here that, that Matt picked out in his uh, research first of all the statement from the czech 
Tennis Federation. Uh, this was in 1975, so two weeks after Martina had left Czechoslovakia. They said Martina Navratilova has suffered a defeat in the face of Czechoslovak society. Navratilova had all the possibilities in Czechoslovakia to develop her talent, but she preferred a professional career and a fat bank account. Obviously, there were restrictions in Iron Curtain countries uh, about... Um, being a professional athlete and earnings and travel restrictions, all sorts of uh, restrictions on on freedom. Um, but that was the way the Czech Federation viewed it at the time. Um, this, though, kind of putting the uh, the the opposing point across or a different perspective from George Pendle writing in 1843 magazine uh, just a few years ago, reflecting back on Naratilova's defection. He said, in an instant, she had freed herself from government minders, from having her prize money confiscated, from the threat of having her passport taken away. But she had also lost her family and friends. She had lost her home. It was a strange kind of freedom that she had gained. So... Not a decision, I'm sure, that uh, Martina would have taken lightly. Um, and, yeah, going into this Fed Cup tie, she had been unable to return home and see family and friends for more than 11 years since that defection in 1975. Well, it really does put it into perspective. And we can get further perspective from Pam Shriver, Martina's longtime doubles partner, part of the most successful doubles partnership ever she can help us set the scene Catherine spoke to her a few days ago and asked her what comes to mind when she thinks of Prague in July 1986 oh there's a lot of things but I'd say the first thing would be the personal tour that Martina gave to uh, Zena Chrissy and myself of of her home area the the club where she grew up um, the home-cooked meal uh, that her mom helped prepare and just you know getting away from the courts and the and the tournament and really stepping into the life that we had never seen in person that Martina led that led up to her defection and then to to realize that we were a part of at that point in time the most famous athlete who'd ever defected from their home country and now was going back and and even though 1986 it was still before the Iron Curtain lifted, so there was still it was still a really bold move, and and Martina was not really recognized by uh, the Czech, Czechoslovakian Tennis Federation in the way that the other three players were recognized. She was never recognized by name at the tournament, um, but she was recognized by the crowd in probably some of the most emotional. Um, n noisy, enthusiastic crowd noises I've ever heard. Um, so it was interesting. It was sort of like the establishment was blocking saying her name over the PA system to the crowd, but the crowd was just lifting Martina up and, you know, showing their support, applauding, you know, her skill, her talent as being um, already a multiple, multiple major winner, had been number one in the world for a long time leading up to that 86 Fed Cup tie, and to be able to share it with Chrissy, the greatest rivalry in the history of sports, having played 80 times in singles. And so Chrissy was there, and I think Chrissy being beside Martina back in Prague was probably the greatest part of that 
gosh, there's so much you, you've just said there that I want to um, pick up on and get stuck into. She defected in in 1975 and and had to write on her visa applications that she was stateless until 1981, when I think she got her United States citizenship. Um, this was the biggest sporting event behind the Iron Curtain in a communist nation outside of the Olympics. It was it was absolutely huge. I believe she had been denied a visa the year before in 1985. Was it ever in doubt that that she would make this return, Martina? Oh, I think th- I think it was in doubt up until um, probably a week or two beforehand. Like something could have happened. I mean, you, if for those of us old enough to remember back to before the Iron Curtain was lifted, I mean, what what was really for sure if you came from a country like the United States? Um, there were a lot of um, mysteries and unknowns and uncertainties. So I don't think it was until we we got there, got to the hotel, sort of had some normalcy of checking in, uh, like other Fed Cup ties, the par- you know the opening party um, that made us you know all realize, yeah, this is this is going to happen. We're going to have an opportunity not just to compete, but hopefully be able to win this Fed Cup tie, and obviously. Anything we did that week was really had had Martina in mind. It was really in her honor. We were celebrating her as a player, as a champion, her bravery coming back to her homeland, her being able to see her family again in her homeland. I mean, there were so many emotional moments, friends from childhood. Um, it was whew, it was it was crazy. I mean, I wish we had iPhones back then and could have recorded more of those behind the scenes moments the way you can now. You mentioned this, this is kind of the huge divergence between the reception that, that Martina got from the fans and the people, which was just rapturous and, and so warm and and the reception she got from, from the Federation and, and the authorities. Were were either of those elements a surprise to, to you, to Martina, to, to the team in terms of the reception that she was going to get? Well, I don't think we were surprised that the public was so, as you say, rapturous and supportive and grateful to be able to see probably the most famous athlete uh, from Czechoslovakia ever. Um, But it did, I think it took us back. You know, we come from the United States, a, a free country where people are able to, you know, have freedoms that back then they didn't have in communist countries. So, but for us to actually hear the PA announcer say our name, you know, Chris Everett, Zena Garrison, Pam Shriver, and not be able to say the name of Martina Navratilova was just, that was, that was really different for us. And, and, um, we couldn't believe it. Uh, and I'm not sure there was any heads up. I just think it was like, all of a sudden we were like, wait, Martina's known as the player from the United States. That's that's just crazy, and you can't you can't imagine now in this day and age. But that's what it was back then. How on earth did you focus on the on the tennis when all of that was going on? Not just obviously Martina herself, but you, the whole team. Well, I think it was pretty easy for us because um, we had obviously a clear goal in mind. We wanted to win the Fed Cup again and win in Prague for Martina. And once you start playing any tennis match anywhere, whether it's center court Wimbledon or a Fed Cup tie or a match in your hometown, you know, once you start, it's tennis and you figure out ways to settle in. And that's what 
that's what everybody did. And, um, you know, I, I, from what I remember, there was just one difficult moment. And Chrissy actually played that Fed Cup with a bit of a knee problem. And, Mar- and Chrissy and Martina were two of the healthiest, most great champions with longevity. And they hardly had injuries. But Chrissy had a bit of a knee tendonitis. I remember she struggled in the match against Raffaella Reggie, I think losing it. So it put we did have one doubles match where we were at 1-1. But for the most part, we were we were just too good for everybody, even against uh, Czechoslovakia in the final. Um, so once once we got into warm up and first ball, we we settled in. When I think of Martina as a as a tennis player and, and watching back some of her matches, she was such a machine on the court at, at her peak. You know, she just played with such purpose. You know, seeing her play on clay, just being so committed to to coming in and playing aggressively. But she's quite an emotional character off the court isn't she what what was she like emotions wise that week and what effect did that did that have on you well from what I recall it was one of the greatest jobs she ever did at managing her emotions um but Martina had been through a lot of learning to do that okay so this is 1986 it's eight years after she won her first major at Wimbledon at 78 over Chrissy she had been through numerous different relationships. She had had the uh, um, the reporter sort of out her before she was, or she would, she tried to get ahead of it, and she knew she had to come out as as uh, as a lesbian. And that was in 1981. She had to sort of live through that. She had to live through um, the defection, getting her citizenship, a lot of her Wimbledon championships, because we all stayed in the village. I remember sometimes there was tumultuous things going on in her life and she was still able to step out on center court and play great finals, even with personal storms going on around her. So this is one of the things that Martina was able to do. Whatever was happening, whatever emotions that would have seemed maybe overwhelming and could be a distraction, she could compartmentalize. And even though she might have some emotions on the court, they never... Or, or very seldom, especially once she hit her stride in, say, like 1981 through, say, 88, she was very seldom knocked off her goal. Uh, really interesting. Uh, a few minutes ago, when you mentioned for you the, the most special aspect of that tie was Martina and Chrissy being part of the team together and going through that to get, together. They were already great, great rivals at that time I think they'd met 69 times at that point which is just extraordinary but then them also being teammates and I think there was a very warm moment between them during during the opening ceremony which must have been incredibly emotional for Martina can you just sort of expand a little bit more on on their relationship and and their experience together that week well I mean they're Rivalry, as you mentioned, they were already close to 70 matchups. They'd won major doubles tournaments together. They'd already played on teams, whether it was Fed Cup or Whiteman Cup, which was USA versus Great Britain. Um, They had known each other since the early 70s. So this was maybe 15 years into knowing each other when they ended up being in Prague. Um, And Chrissy knew that it was Martina's week. It was Martina's moment to make history for herself and Chrissy wasn't going to miss it, um, even with knee tendonitis. And, you know, it's not easy between Wimbledon and the U.S. Open with everybody scheduled to go to Prague on a clay court. But it was something that Chrissy w- wouldn't miss. And I think it shows you sort of the loyalty that Chrissy 
had towards the friendship and the rivalry and it, it, I thought they both handled it great. Two of the greatest champions in the history of women's tennis coming together on the same team at a historic moment. Um, and I thought Chrissy, Chrissy handled it all beautifully. Did it, did it feel historic at the time in that moment being a part of it? Did we yes. aware? Yeah. Yes. It felt really big. It felt, well, sometimes you can measure how big it feels by the number of media people around and the number of people who made the trip or could, could get visas to get in. And there was a lot, there was a lot of, um, extra media there, um, extra USTA people, um, ITF. I mean, everyone knew this was not just your normal team competition. It was, it really, it, it maybe was the most in tennis, the most, um, unique, tennis uh, team format uh, week ever. Um, and so that's what I remember is just so many more people. Like the, the next year it was in Vancouver, Canada. And then um, two years later we won it in Tokyo in what was Chrissy's last match ever uh, after the U.S. Open in 1989. But when I think about all the different Fed Cup matches or Whiteman Cup teams, I mean, and even some Davis Cup matches that I've been able to go to, including the U.S. when they won um, their last Davis Cup tie. I mean, Davis Cup win for the year. This one will, I don't think, ever be repeated as far as um, not just tennis history, but really, in a way, kind of world history. Those are incredibly powerful words, aren't they? Particularly at the end there from Pam Shriver, who Catherine spends a good... 50 minutes with on the phone a few days ago and we'll play the rest of the interview for you in a separate podcast in a few days time she was so interesting to hear her stories from the early years when pam herself reached a u.s open final the experience she's had experiences she's had with martina on the doubles court incredible doubles partnership so many fascinating thoughts about the game today and 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 exactly the situation that we all find ourselves in right now and when tennis might return so that'll come up in a few days time but uh, in terms of this particular interview this particular story it's it's mind-boggling isn't it to 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 think what it must have been like emotionally i think for for martina navratilova in particular to go back to her homeland and we saw the match all together and just the kind of the the wider story, Matt. I mean, you've 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 read up on a lot of what went on during that, the lead up to the event and and the event itself. It must have been a very strange atmosphere. Mm, absolutely. I just just hearing Pam there talk about everything that Martina has overcome in her life. I think this this story of 1986, as we've said, really starts in 1975 with the defection and everything that she had to overcome in those years in between. This was then like a kind of like a seminal moment in her career, really. And I I feel bad, really, that I didn't know that much about it. It was Mary Carrillo who tipped us off that it would be an interesting story to tell. And I think it really is. I think these days we can get so swept up in Grand Slam success being the absolute measure of a player's career. But actually, Martina Navratilova is a perfect example of someone who who had so much so much more going on in her life. I don't want to compare kind of hardships that players have gone through, but Martina Navratilova had so much to overcome and yet achieved so much on the on the court. Um and this and this would have been, as you said, such an emotional moment. I found it really 
fascinating delving into the research in terms of what Pam was saying there in the difference between the reaction that she received from the local officials and the reaction she got from the fans. Just to expand on that a bit, the USA's matches were shunted to the grandstand court, even though Martina Navratilova and Chris Everett were two of the biggest draws. So only 800 people were able to sit on that court and watch while the other matches took place in the 8,000-seat main stadium. So there's reports of four, five people deep on those grandstand courts climbing on chairs, on ladders, just to get a glimpse of Martina Navratilova. Um, the newspapers provided only bare-bones accounts of, of, of those matches involving Navratilova. The stadium shops sold photos of every player apart from Navratilova. Uh, photographers were stopped from taking photos of her. Um, and when USA won the tie, the, the prime minister got up and left immediately. He didn't, he didn't even acknowledge either the winning team or the losing team. And he was followed out of the box by, by the officials as well. So that was on the one hand. Then on, on the other hand, you had the crowd reaction, you know, people coming up to Navratilova and giving her roses, uh, linesmen asking her for her autograph. Um, there's an incredible story that, that there's a train track running behind behind the court and and a driver would would sort of stop the train so that people on the train could catch a glimpse of the court as it was going past and he would go past multiple times a day and always stop so that people could watch um just an incredible contrast in those two perspectives which i think is really important to to acknowledge and that's something that came across when we were watching the match the warmth of the crowd towards her e even in the knock-up we when the players were introduced at the start i felt the bigger ovation went to Navratilova over the player playing under the Czechoslovakian flag in Mandlikova. That that was the sense I got. There was there was a sort of polite, warm applause throughout for for all the shots. There was it, it didn't really feel like a a classic Fed Cup atmosphere, and the place was packed. I mean, there was it was a huge crowd watching this match. Not a seat to be had, but it was. I I got the sense people didn't really know what what they were supposed to be doing and they were just reacting instinctively and that was to be politely warm towards Martina and the, and then at the end it all just seemed to come out because when she was giving the the post match interview she was really getting warmly received and as as Pam said there the noise was was immense and and it really started to show on martina's face she was she was pretty emotional at the end it was it was quite some watch catherine and it, this wasn't part of what we were what we were able to to rewatch re we relived the what proved to be the deciding rubber in singles between Vatilova and mandlikova but the opening ceremony for the whole event it was i should say it was um it was a it was a fed cup event the style of which we were going to see this year in it, with the revamped fed cup in in budapest it was a standalone uh, 40 nation event held in one city during during one week in prague um but but matt some of the some of the accounts uh, and detail of the opening ceremony as well were were pretty breathtaking mm. i think the first thing i would say about the opening ceremony is how about this for symbolism and coincidence is that the opening ceremony took place on 
Sunday the 20th of July 1986, which was five years to the day since Navratilova had received her US citizenship. It was the same day in the calendar. So she received her citizenship on the 20th of July 1981. And then five years later, she's out coming out on the court in her homeland, but wearing the USA's colours. Really extraordinary coincidence there. Um, and yeah, I just wanted to pick up on the role of Hannah Mandlakova during that opening ceremony because, as we've heard, officials wouldn't say Navratilova's name, but Hannah Mandlakova stepped up and kind of announced her to the crowd. And apparently, they were, apparently the cheers were rapturous and incredible. And people just gave Navratilova this such warmth um, because Navratilova had, herself had been really unsure how she would be received. So that was a really important moment to re, to get that warmth from the crowd. Um, and it's interesting because Mandlakova herself hadn't played much in Czechoslovakia. She was given license to travel without the restrictions that Martina had, but she wasn't allowed to defect. So um, she was kind of seen as this this queen, really, of Czechoslovakian tennis, whereas Martina was presented as kind of a non-person. They they didn't acknowledge her records in the in Czechoslovakia. Um, so Mandlakova was was able to travel and she was able to live there, but she hadn't played there for eight years in Prague. So it was kind of a bit of a homecoming for her as well. And I think the reports are that she was really classy about it and just recognised also that it was Navratilova's moment in the same way that Chris Everett did on the USA team, as Pam Shriver was saying. Um, and another another thing that I found about Mandlikova is that she got married that week <laughs> during the tournament. So we watched them play the final on the Sunday. No she'd way. Got, she'd got married on the Friday. I, I, I came across this uh, article in The Independent from 2001 Looking back on that, and John Roberts writes, while taking a morning stroll during the Fed Cup in Prague in 1986, a British tennis journalist noticed a newlywed couple outside the old town hall. She looks like Hannah, he thought, dismissing the notion he walked on by. But upon arriving at the stadium, the journalist discovered that the bride in the mid-blue leather suit was indeed Hannah Mandlikova. She called a press conference to announce that she'd just married Jan Sedlak, the owner of a restaurant in Sydney, Australia. So it was almost like this was this was a week for Mandlikova as well that she almost wanted to mark in an extraordinary way because it was everything about it was extraordinary for her as well. Um, just something I found fascinating that I hadn't realised while we were watching the match that we saw between Navratilova and Mandlikova. She she'd got married two days earlier. <laughs> That's wow. Gosh, just digesting what a story. that. Yeah, what a story. And the the tie itself, the final was that the the match we saw was the second of the three rubbers. The first rubber was Chris Everett Lloyd, as she was then known, because she was married to John Lloyd, uh, the British uh, former player. Um, she beat Helena Sokova 7-5-7-6. And then second up was Martina against Mandlikova. Now, the first set was really tight, wasn't it? It was, it was five all ended up being 1-7-5 by Navratilova, and then she raced away with the second 6-1. What, what was your impression of what we actually saw in terms of, of the tennis? How good it was, how good Martina Navratilova was. I mean, I have, I have 
extremely hazy memories of the latter stages of Martina Navratilova's career. Um, but I, I don't, I don't really have any clear memories of her in her absolute pomp. I'm looking forward to to seeing some of that on grass at Wimbledon um, when we do tennis relived there. But seeing it on clay um, is special for for different reasons obviously I mean the first thing that struck me at the side of her was just what an athlete she was I mean she was just in her absolute physical prime she just looked so strong and balanced and her movement was just incredible absolutely incredible and although you know her, her movement was built for grass she she was a good slider on the clay, wasn't she? Particularly moving up to the net, you know, she didn't look, she didn't look remotely uncomfortable on clay or that she was sort of unsure of her best footing. She just had this total commitment to her game and her style of play that, that it would be enough, that it would be good enough no matter what the surface, no matter who the opponent and yeah, she she was really incredible. The other thing that I think struck me even before that was that both of them had their hair down with not tied up. They both had shoulder length hair and neither had it tied up. I mean, I just cannot imagine doing sport without tying my hair up. I know you're not going to be able to contribute anything to this. Or maybe you will be able to in a few months. <laughs> um <laughs> But I, I couldn't get over My it. My 1995 self could have related to it, I think. Um, <laughs> but, uh, when I had my curtains, <laughs> and that was flopping about. You could have done the top knot in those days, David. That would have been oh, good. Oh, goodness. <laughs> <laughs> um, what, what struck me was, because uh, I remember those days. I do remember watching tennis back then. And I remember Mandlikova always being talked about as having a big forehand for her time. She had an incredibly powerful, flat-struck forehand that just pinged off the strings. I, I would compare it in a little way to, to Lendl's of, of that era. Um, it wasn't blistering one-punch knockout power, but it was just relentless. It would, she could hit deep and powerfully with it, but it was noticeable in the second set. She just stopped doing that. She started trying to chip and charge and almost play Navratilova at her own game. And you realise then just what a what a great Navratilova was as an exponent of serve and volley tennis, of chip charge tennis. And she would beat you with combinations. She wouldn't just you see these days somebody comes in and a volley is a knockoff volley because the the approach has been so devastating in its own right and it's produced a put away. Back then they weren't trying to get a put away on the first volley or often with their approach. They were just trying to get in and then they would come up with a, she would come up with a combination and she would volley a, a, a knee high volley deep and then get you on the next one. If she needed three or four volleys, not a problem. And I, I just think that is such a rare ability these days. It wasn't all just drop volleys. It was, it was just these wonderful combinations and it's something that's has been largely lost to the game these days and and Navratilova I think probably doesn't get the due that that she deserves for just how good she was because as you say the movement was mind-blowing at times and people forget and that's the beauty of going back and watching something like this is it just reminds you 
my word, she could have competed against anybody in any era. And she made Mandlikova lose faith in her game, didn't she? She lost that opening set, Mandlikova, when she really had hung in there and competed well. It was pretty nip and tuck and Martina was very obviously nervous. You know, she wasn't, it, it was good tennis, but there were moments when you could really see the strain of, of those nerves and she was showing the, the stress on her face and the frustration of being a perfectionist. You know, there was never any, it was interesting how, negative her body language was she never celebrated a great shot she just chastised herself for a subpar shot because she was obviously this crazy perfectionist as so many great athletes are but she won that tight opening set and then Mandlikova seemed to just think well well my game's not good enough then and tried to beat Martina at hers which obviously was was a hiding to nothing and that is what great players make you do they make you adjust to them you know, they, they 100% back their own game style to be good enough on whatever surface against whatever opponent. And that's what Navratilova did there. Um, I think you've both commented on the style of plays that we saw, something that we all picked up on in terms of how tennis has changed, happened between the first set and the second set. As you said, that first set was really tight, 7-5. But because they played an even number of games, they didn't actually go and sit down like they would now at the change of ends. They, they they just played the next game. They started the second set there and then. And I actually thought that was a turning point in the match in terms of the momentum because Navratilova had just broken to win the set and then she rattled through a service game in no time. And so within one change of ends, she had won the set and got off to a good start in the next set and Mandlikova looked, started to look a little bit deflated. And it was just interesting the way that not having that break between sets can alter momentum. Whereas now players have a bit more time to reflect and each set feels like a new start. Whereas it, it, did, it didn't in those days. They just carried on, um, which was something we also noticed from the, from the 95 final in Monte Carlo, which we're going to talk about. Yeah, it felt so abrupt, didn't it? So, I mean, and and their speed of play generally, I mean, that's been striking mm. about all the matches besides the Murray for Aaron that we've watched so far. There's just just no messing. You know, the players are waiting on the ball kids. They, they can't get the ball kids to give them the balls fast enough to serve. Bring that back, please. <laughs> <laughs> uh, also, a nice little note here that as well as having played Mandlikova in the Wimbledon final that Navratilova won that one in straight sets as well she then went on to the US Open and faced Helena Sokova in the final of the US Open <laughs> and beat her 6-3-6-2 then went on to the 1987 Australian Open and lost to Mandlikova Mandlikova winning 7-5-7-6 to, to win her uh, first, her only Australian Open singles title. So a lot of matches against her former compatriots and, and just such an interesting period in the sport. And it does show how all the top players were playing Fed Cup in those days and how cool it was to have them all together, which is what they've wanted to get back to with that kind of format of having the best players in the world play each other in a country competition, which doesn't doesn't happen quite so often with the with the old format of Davis Cup and Fed Cup, but obviously then back then it did, which was which was great for the sport. I was reading. Do you want to hazard a guess at what Navratilova's overall Fed Cup record is in her whole career? I imagine she lost about three. I rubbers. suspect it's ridiculous. 
She lost one, and it was her, <laughs> it was her final ever rubber. When she came back to play in two thousand and four, she teamed up with Jill Crabass. But overall, her record is twenty and oh in singles and twenty and one in doubles. Do you wow. think she holds that against Jill Crabass? <laughs> Do you know I saw? Martin and Avratilova play in Fed Cup in 2004 in Perchak in Slovenia. I don't know whether it was that tie. Um, but, uh, yeah, the USA consisted of Navratilova right at the end of her career, uh, just playing doubles. I don't recall her playing, but maybe she did. And then there was uh, Venus Williams playing as part of that team. Um, yeah, it was, it was a fantastic occasion. This wow. loss was against uh, Austria. Um, Austria. Yeah. Right. Barbara Schecht was playing. Wow. There you go. So, what great memories. And uh, yeah, Martin and Avratilova, she'll be coming up again in Tennis Relived over the next uh, few weeks and months when we get to the French Open and Wimbledon. Yeah. I, I just wanted to read out a little thing from Sports Illustrated from Frank Defford, who's one of the great sports writers. Um, I think it just sums up this story quite well, something to end on. Is uh, he says, Saint Wenceslas? I, I'm, apologies if I'm just saying that for the first time and pronouncing it incorrectly. Um, I got Lady Gaga on. <laughs> well, Saint Wenceslas, the city's patron, once promised to pop back if things ever got really sticky, but neither religious atrocity nor foreign occupation, neither the jackboots of the Nazis nor the tanks of Moscow have been enough to summon his return. Don't bother asking for when Cessless yet, the Czechs say, for things are bound to get worse. So this summer, for just a moment's time, Martina reappeared instead. No saint, for sure, but every inch a symbol. Her name, Navratilova, even means she who returns. And so she did, although as her time passed in Czechoslovakia, Navratilova came more to mean she who represents hope, and then, at last, she who triumphs, which I just thought was a really powerful summation of the impact mm. that this moment had on the country, really. God, I love it when sport intersects with history. That is one of my sweet spots. Fantastic. So that's 1986. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort. So you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Hello, Tennis Podcast listeners. David here. Now, you might know that I love a bit of cooking, and I think I'm quite good at it. 
but if I'm honest, even I get fed up trying to work out what to do every night. That's where Home Chef comes in. Being able to put together a delicious meal without the long prep and the cook times, well, that's pretty cool. Home Chef provides fresh ingredients and chef-designed recipes conveniently delivered to your doorstep to simplify your cooking experience. They have over 30 options a week and serve a variety of dietary needs, so you don't have to worry about what to make ahead of time. Not only is it convenient, but it's economical too. Home Chef customers save an average of $86 per month on groceries. Now, for a limited time, Home Chef is offering Tennis Podcast listeners 18 free meals plus free dessert for life and, of course, free shipping on your very first box. Go to homechef.com slash tennis. That's homechef.com slash tennis for 18 free meals and free dessert for life. You heard it right. What about 1995? Catherine, what were you doing in 1995? Um, winning things yeah yeah that was my uh, athletic peak it turns out Um, genuinely not a setup I asked my mum to try and produce some photos for well she's producing all of these photos Uh, but the one the first one she produced from 1995 was me proudly holding a cup Uh, and she sent it to the uh, the family group chat or no she she held it up during a family group chat and my brother's response was what when did Kathy ever win a cup which uh (laughs) he can get in the bin for um subtext I was the one that won all the cups which is not untrue um (laughs) but yeah technically I only won a quarter of that cup because uh I had run third leg in the sprint relay at district sports Berkshire and we had won, and um, I insisted on being the one to take the cup home. <laughs> and uh, take the cup home and then sort of engage my parents in some sort of photo shoot uh, of me with the cup, uh, for which I would be grateful 25 years later. Yeah, we've got the photo- photographic evidence of it. Uh, well, and of my hair. In 1995. Yeah, if I thought I was peaking, then don't know what the word is for what you were doing, David. Great hair days. Have you seen the poll I'm running on Instagram, David? No. Well, currently you're beating Hugh Grant in a in a style contest. (laughs) I think you might be peaking in 2020. Actually, the futility of polls. (laughs) Yeah, I I had deliberately gone into the hairdressers and taken a picture of Hugh Grant with me, and I said, "I want that, please." And (laughs) this was when Hugh Grant was a thing. He he was in (laughs) four weddings and funeral and all sorts. This is like Um, Roger Federer against Timothy Chalamet all over again. (laughs) (laughs) Well, that means. David's Federer. Yeah. yeah. The underdog. Go. So, I, yeah, basically I, I, I had the curtains uh, all over my eyes and, uh, yeah, it was a horrific look. Well, I, um, I can't quite believe I'm saying this, but I, when you produced that photo after all the talk about your Hugh Grant days, I was pleasantly surprised. I didn't, it didn't, I don't think it looks nearly as awful. I mean, it was all of its time. I don't think you should do that now. Um, for various reasons, I disagree. <laughs> but uh, I haven't got much choice. I mean, now is exactly the time to perhaps to uh, to grow your hair. Um, oh. But it it was it was all right. Okay, right. Well, my I'm, very, I'm surprised so. to hear that the the ladies didn't come a flocking. 
Yeah, they didn't. <laughs> they absolutely didn't. And uh, my mother refuses to put that picture up in her house. Uh, and even though I graduated with that hairdo. So um, there we are. Uh, lots of other things happened in 1995 as well. Not all of them good, um, as you can probably imagine. O.J. Simpson was judged to be not guilty uh, of double murder, although that would be followed by a civil case with uh, a different outcome. The five-year Bosnian War came to an end. Toy Story was released, uh, Braveheart was Best Picture at the Oscars, and Madison Keys was born. Those all happened in 1995. God, in the Braveheart was rubbish, wasn't it? Uh, best in the picture. tennis world more generally, uh, the, the big story really was the rivalry between Andre Agassi and Pete Sampras. They'd played in the Australian Open final, won by Agassi. They'd played in the Indian Wells final, won by Sampras. And they'd, won, they'd played in the Miami final, won by Agassi. So that was the prevailing storyline. I don't think either of them played in Monte Carlo that year. But Thomas Muster, Matt, had begun, I feel, to almost play a sport on his own because he... he wasn't a factor at those sort of events. But my word, when he got on clay, was he a factor? Mm, I love that description because it does seem that he was just kind of doing his own thing on clay. Um, so going into the Monte Carlo final, he was on a 21-match winning streak on clay. He'd already won three titles that season on the surface in Mexico City, Estoril and Barcelona. Um, just to Just to take those stats onwards... So moving past this Monte Carlo final, just to demonstrate how dominant he was on on clay in this period, he would eventually extend his winning streak to 40 matches, winning Monte Carlo, Rome, Roland Garros and St. Polten in Austria. And it was the longest winning streak on the surface since Bjorn Borg in 1977 to 1979, winning 46 Overall, on clay in 1995, his win-loss record was 65 wins, two losses, with Alex Correction and Albert Costa, the only two players to beat him. He won 12 titles in the season, 11 of them on clay. And my favourite part of that is five of those clay court titles were after Roland Garros. <laughs> like he, <laughs> he somehow managed to find all these tournaments on clay and just win them all, as you said, while everyone else was doing other things. Um, and so 12 titles is a record he shares with Federer, who also won 12 in 2006. Um, and then he would carry that clay court form into the next season when he won seven titles on clay. And he went into the 1996 Roland Garros, having won 96 of his last 99 matches on clay. I mean, extraordinary, extraordinary numbers. And yet, the thing I find most incredible about Thomas Muster, when you see numbers like that, is he has one French Open, which came in that 1995 season. He kind of timed his extraordinary burst only around kind of one French Open, and he had... He had some difficult draws, I think, at the French Open. He played Courier and he played Gomez the year he won it. But, yeah, to think he only has one French Open with numbers like that on clay is pretty pretty remarkable. And that that burst was relatively late-ish in his career. He was mm. 27 uh, in 95 during the, the, the Monte Carlo final that, that we relived yesterday. Um, and before that, he—I mean, he was a—he was a thing. He was around. He had been, I think, top twenty the year before, and sort of steadily risen up the rankings. Sort of slight 
parallels with Stan Wawrinka, I suppose. He was there or thereabouts, but nobody was talking about him as a, a genuine Grand Slam contender. And then all of a sudden he's he's a thing, a big, big thing, and winning everything and and getting to number one in the world and, and winning a Grand Slam. And I suppose the difference with Wawrinka is it happened just the once. He expended... He expended his canister in a, what, two-year period? Well, he got to an 89 semi-final at the Australian Open. He'd got to, as well, the semi-finals, uh, or in fact, the final of the Miami tournament uh, later that year. And he'd beaten Yannick Noah in five sets in the semi-finals of the Lipton Championships. Uh, and he was due to play Lendl the next day in the final. Um, in the early hours, though, when he was... I, I understand he was getting something out of his car, uh, the the sort of the boot of the car, and a drunk driver rolled straight into him and, and severed ligaments in his knee. I'll never forget this, the, the video pictures that were, were played thereafter uh, of him on a clay court, sitting on a chair with his leg raised, unable to get up, but smashing forehands from a sitting position as he tried to get back in into tennis. And, I mean, my early recollections of, of Muster in between 90 and 95 when this was, was happening was when I was really following everything. I, was, I watched all of those clay court tournaments you've just talked about, Matt. I watched the lot, including all the ones after the French Open. <laughs> um, so I, 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 99, 96 out of 99 matches he won, I, I watched all of them. And... Um, my sense before that, I remember when he lost to Courier at the, the French Open, was that he, he was such a, a grinder. He was the ultimate grinder, but he didn't have a big shot. He had a like a, a heavy forehand that just kept on coming, but he was not explosive. And you would get to the, the Grand Slams when everybody else was peaking and somebody else had a bit more, had a bit more, too much for him, and uh, even on clay. So... He developed something in in ninety five and also not, I mean when he arrived at Roland Garros in ninety six he was such a favorite he was a Nadal like favorite to win that title and he ran into Michael Stick who beat him um, huge shock at the time um, but coming into Monte Carlo it was interesting when we saw the graphics on the screen that he was I think the ninth seed and Becker was the second seed and he was in a run of of form. I mean, okay, there was no Sampras Nagasi there, but he he had an incredible year the rest of that year, did Boris Becker at the big events. But on clay, he'd always he he'd struggled to break through. He'd had some some fantastic results, but he hadn't managed to 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 win a title. Yeah, he'd never won a title on clay and never did in his career. Um but he did say during that Monte Carlo um tournament that it really was a goal for him to win a clay court title. It would have been such a big deal for him just to win any title on clay because of the way that the surface didn't match up that well with his game. Um, he really had to overcome the surface. So obviously we'll get into the match, but for Becker to not win this match against Muster must rank as one of his toughest defeats given given all of that given the position he put himself in in the match and what he said about how much of a goal it was to win on clay and the, the other element of the backstory matt is that muster the day before had played a certain andrea gaudenzi who is now the atp's chairman uh and gaudenzi was not 
very happy at the end of that match and Muster was in a right state. Yeah, Gaudenzi was not behaving like ATP chairman in waiting. Um, <laughs> it's, it, 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 it's also a good rewatch. I just watched the latter stages um, and Muster is sucking in air. He can barely walk between points and Gaudenzi is getting really thrown off by that. It's really messing messing him up mentally. And anyway, it goes to a second set tie break and Musta wins it. And he wins it on a smash. And Gaudenzi, after hitting the return of the smash into the net, follows the ball into the net with his racket. He throws it violently from the baseline into the net, sort of cutting through the air viciously. <laughs> I mean, it could have, it was dangerous. It could have hit a ball kid going to pick the ball up from the net. It could have gone over the net and hit Muster. He was just absolutely furious, Gaudenzi. He gets booed off the court by all the crowds. Muster's still on the on the floor in a heap, can't even get up. Gaudenzi goes over to he does shake Muster's hand, but he doesn't shake the umpire's hand. He was really annoyed with the umpire for not insisting on the uh, time between points because he thought Muster, Muster was so tired and he wasn't he was taking too long and the umpire wasn't enforcing that rule where we heard that before um and yeah he's just absolutely furious gaudenzi is it's it's quite comical in a way but also you're aware that actually what he's done is quite dangerous he could have hurt someone there was there was a potential incident which didn't happen which could have done with him throwing that racket um and he goes into his press conference and he's talking all about the umpire not enforcing the rule but Muster that evening actually went to hospital. Uh, he had he he had several sugar infusions because he he was saying he had no energy. He hadn't slept for he'd slept like six hours over the past forty eight hours. He, he had no appetite at all. He couldn't eat. You know he kind of thought he was ill. And he said, you know, he was asked, "Are you going to be able to play in the final tomorrow against Becker?" And he came out with this amazing line saying, "Well, it's nice to win Monte Carlo." but not with a heart attack. <laughs> so the, so the, it was really in doubt whether he would actually take to the court against Becker the next day. And actually, when you saw them in the early stages, because Becker wins the first two sets, and it was a bit like watching Ferrer against Murray the other week, wasn't it? Where you're early on, you're thinking, what, is this supposed to be a classic? Because it's an absolute <laughs> one-sided demolition job. And Becker is playing some fantastic shots he's serving and volleying relentlessly there was that stat wasn't there after about a set and a half becker had come to the net 60 times on clay um which was great fun to watch and it also reminded me that how muster hated playing serve and volleyers his record against stefan edberg at, at right now thomas muster's record against stefan edberg is zero ten. Oof. No way! He, just, he couldn't play him. He couldn't. Didn't matter what they played on. He couldn't beat Edberg. And when he was playing Becker at the time, Becker was two zero up, wasn't he, in the head to head? And then here he is, two sets to love up. And Mustard does look just short of energy. He's got no zip and get up and go. But because, in a way, because we haven't seen him play for so many years, you kind of don't know what what his baseline level is really. And then you see in terms of energy, in terms of get up and go. And then you suddenly see that starting to come to the fore later on and what a different player he became. But as a match, 
the I think the third set was one sided in favour of Muster, wasn't it? It was one of those classic Becker's one two sets, but he's having to really shot make on clay in order to do it. Uh, and then the the crux of the match is the fourth set, an incredible fourth set, isn't it? And that was really close throughout match points, everything. Yeah, those two match points that Boris Becker held six four in the fourth set tie break. That's that's as close as Boris Becker came to to winning a, a title on clay, and he he double faulted on uh, on the one on his serve, and that was his only double fault at that stage. His only double fault in the match over the course of four sets, and he um, and he and he really went for the second serve, mm. which was a which was a tactic he was going for on clay. He said. He said afterwards, you have to trust your gut feeling. And I would have regretted it more if I'd just patted the ball in and lost and lost the point. And it had served him so well all tournament going for that approach on the serves. And it just it led him down on that point. You know, his approach was right. It got him in a winning position on clay. He just couldn't execute under the pressure of championship point, which is amazing to think that, you know, even someone as great as Boris Becker, it you know it gets to him and it it snowballed didn't it because he was a a, she- a shell of a man in the in the fist that he he barely won he, a point yeah he disintegrated in that fist that he couldn't believe it he couldn't believe that he'd squandered that opportunity it was as if he knew that was it that was my chance to to win a title on clay to who knows what he could have gone on to do on clay had he won one of those two points because it was the the deciding set was just not remotely a contest and Thomas Muster was in his face he was a <laughs> ball of energy a bag of beans just in his face with just oh I'm so pleased with myself that that you didn't win those match points and here we are in a fifth set and, and you know it, it was only well an hour or so ago just... that you were two sets to love up on me and here I am just but look at that ground stroke I've just yeah passing shot I've because just he hadn't Boris been up. that demonstrative Thomas Mister throughout the whole match and suddenly it all comes out in the fifth set and he is just rubbing Boris Becker's nose in the whole situation and poor guy just looks like a a shell he looks like a hollowed out shell it was yeah it was pretty extraordinary the way that that match ended the uh the, at the start of the match they had a the photo at the net and crikey you don't get that feeling of i don't know tension these days that you got in matches back then because these two were standing shoulder to shoulder they weren't looking at each other there was no communication between them it was just attitude a feeling of aggro at the end, it was a polite handshake, a little hand on the shoulder from Becker to him, and and Muster was just beside himself with his celebrations. He was really milking it, but in the post-match press conferences, it did take a different turn, didn't it? In terms of, I mean, but like I said, Becker seemed to be quite magnanimous in in defeat at the end. I think he lost a six-love set, didn't he, in that in that fifth set? But in the post-match press conference, he he wasn't too happy with with Muster, um, sort of going from death's door in the Gadenzi match and looking like he's out on his feet early on in the first two sets to being a ball of energy at the end. Yeah, he he was asked to explain what happened in the fifth set. And he said, Boris Becker, I wasn't too tired in the fifth. He just seemed to be on another level, um, which is not normal. 
So that was the first quote that, you know, maybe he was going to cast some aspersions here, Boris Becker. And then the journalist dug a little deeper um, and he just said, I have a hard time seeing muster today and muster yesterday. Either he wasn't so tired yesterday or he did something last night or this morning. Um, he's been known to be very fit, but yesterday in the, on the court, he seemed to be dying. And just 24 hours later, he's down two sets to love and he's running quicker than in the fifth set than in the first set. He says, I'm just, I'm just saying what everyone is seeing. And he says, either he's a very good actor or something unbelievable magical happened last night. And personally, I don't believe too much in wonders. Um, and then the journalist said, you know, you're saying this, this sounds funny, but you're serious about this. And Becca says, yes, I'm, I'm a serious person. All I know is that what I saw yesterday doesn't go with what I saw today. Mm. Uh, exactly what he was getting at. We, you know, we don't exactly know. But what we do know, according to Tennis365, who reported on this match subsequently in the years, in recent years, in fact, they've reported that Becker was fined $20,000 for those comments. And the ATP, after an investigation, determined that Becker had violated a rule governing conduct contrary to the integrity of the game. The remarks by Boris Becker raised inappropriate questions about the reputation of Thomas Muster and the tournament physician, Dr. Patrick Coder said David Cooper, the ATP's administrator of regulations. So, yeah, Becker in hot water for those comments. And, yeah, I, I couldn't completely remember that story you told, Matt, about how Muster had been in the hospital the night before and, and had those sugar infusions. Um, but, yeah, Boris Becker wrist slapped and some big headlines for Thomas Muster. Yeah a year for headlines for thomas muster yeah because he well yeah over the next over the next 12 months he would be in the headlines a lot because he would win the french open he would go to world number one and then he would also have tabloid headlines for an alleged relationship with the duchess of york sarah ferguson which uh, uh rumbled on for the next few months i remember being at queen's when uh, tabloid journalists were following him around and leaning over and actually funny enough talking to andrea gaudenzi who used to be his training partner because both muster and gaudenzi were um were managed by the same person ronnie lightgib a very influential person in the sport of tennis over the the course of about 15 or 20 years in in austria um so yeah muster was a big deal back then he went on that incredible run um but that match just sticks in the memory almost almost feels like the starting point for it all for his run but what's also interesting is what becker went on to do because while things weren't going very well for him on clay and, and and it had felt like many of his best years were probably behind him with the emergence of Agassi and Sampras, they then went on to Wimbledon and Agassi, I mean, Sampras had won how many in a row by then? He'd won two in a row, 93-94, went into 95, probably his joint favourite with Agassi for the title because Agassi had won the Australian Open. And I remember that Agassi was leading Becker by a set, I think a set and a break. And then, and he was absolutely thrashing him in the way that only Agassi could on grass. He just took these big servers apart. He'd beaten Becker in the 92 run to the final uh, and to the, the title in the end. And then Becker mounted a comeback and won. 
uh, in the semi-finals, ended up playing Sampras in the final, edged out by Sampras, and then he went all the way to the semis of the US Open as well, did Becker. And that's when he'd had some sort of falling out with Agassi, because when they faced each other in the semi-finals of the US Open, it was a four-set win for Agassi. But right at the end, when he hits a, a winning forehand return, he comes up to Becker and basically slaps his hand away at the handshake because, and he doesn't make eye contact. He just sort of slaps his hand and walks off with his hand raised, you know. Um, and it was just agro central. Brilliant stuff. Uh, Agassi eventually beaten in the final by Pete Sampras. And then Agassi's career then suddenly went into nosedive. And that's when he went into the challenger uh, level of the tournaments. And, and he, he, he talks about that. Uh, I think he sustained an injury in that match against Becker, a chest injury, a sort of pectoral injury, um, and ended up just yeah withering away. But there were so many players to talk about in that era and so many of them brought something it was great we don't need to talk matt on when we relive 90s matches <laughs> your memory david for the 90s is extraordinary <laughs> it really is i just love it i love it i Did, mean didn't um the, didn't becca then go on to win the Australian Open the next yeah, the, he did. The next year, yeah. in ninety six. Uh, in in ninety six, yes, he beat uh, Michael Chang in the final. I'm trying to remember what happened to Sampras back in uh, in ninety six. Was I that really can't... the Philippusis year? It was. You're quite right. It was the Philippusis yeah. year, and he was absolutely knocked off the court. I mean. I'd love to relive that match because it was Sampras was world number one. He was beating everybody. He and he was famous for knocking everybody off the court. And Philippus has just picked him up and threw him around. It was incredible. Three straight sets. Um, some of the hardest hitting I've ever seen from from Philippus. You're quite right. And then Mark Woodford beat Philippus the next round when all the hype was going around. Phil, Woodford just came out and just sliced him and diced him up. <laughs> And then Becker, in the hottest conditions that I think I've ever seen at the Australian Open, went and beat Mark Woodford in straight sets on his way uh, to the title. So, yeah, I, and I think it was maybe t it was two years later that I joined the tour full-time. And actually, both Muster and Becker featured in my early memories of being involved in tennis because in 96, in when I did my first ever work experience, the first player I came across at Queen's was Thomas Muster and he was in the gym um, and I was looking through this window trying to sort of locate where he was in the distance and suddenly he was right in front of my face. He just <laughs> walked across from out of vision to in front of my face and he was looking at, looking at me uh, and, and stomping around because it was raining outside and he was training like an animal. I've just never seen anything like the intensity he would train at, Thomas Muster. Becker, in my first day for the ATP, a tournament in Split in Croatia, was there and he carried himself I don't know how players coped with it the way he would just sort of walk around and he'd just suddenly stare you out like I, I had never met him in my life but I kind of crossed paths with him on the way to the toilet and there he was stood there coming out and just eyeballing me as I'm passing him and I'm thinking what have I done <laughs> so, he's a seriously intimidating guy ah uh, those were the days so yeah, you can tell just from the on the the 
the footage that we watched of the the Monte Carlo match yesterday they included the the footage started with the players waiting in the Monte Carlo clubhouse and them doing that you know quite iconic walk through the clubhouse a bit like Queens actually and then down the steps and onto the court and you you could feel the in waves of intimidation coming off Thomas Mister. Yeah. I mean Boris Becker was a pretty imposing guy you know big and strong and statuesque and you know had a massive aura and as you say he was the highest seed but there was something a, a bit scary <laughs> about Thomas but Mister. It, it felt back then in the 80s and, and the early 90s mid 90s it felt as though that was part of the game was to try to intimidate or at least at the very least show that you're not intimidated the, the it, it's so much cuddlier and cozier now you don't you don't get that feeling of players trying to impact each other um, when they're in the locker room or when they're on the handshake and or in the knock up or any of this stuff. Back then, there were messages being sent all the time. Um, oh, those are the days. It's great. <laughs> I feel like we need a kind of new theme tune for this section of the pod. So the, yeah, the life David and times talks of about David the nineties. <laughs> I need a 90s theme, folks. Uh, let me know what you think. At Tennis Podcast, what sort of theme tune should we have? Um, but that's about it. Anything else before we uh, look ahead into our futures? What's there to look ahead to? <laughs> Not much. <laughs> you got any shout-outs, Matt? I do, yes. Um, shout-outs to Richard Denton, to Jonathan Patton, and to Gail Nell. Hey, Richard, thanks, Jonathan, Gail, hello and thank you. Legends one and all. Brilliant stuff. Um, so thank you for your backing. Um, I hope you have enjoyed Tennis Relived once again. As I said, we're going to have a, a, an interview, the full interview with Pam Shriver that Catherine did coming your way in the next few days. And we are constantly talking about other ideas um, which are going to be coming your way on the tennis podcast thank you for joining us for this one take care of yourselves and we'll see you soon hey it's danny pellegrino from everything iconic ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget check out quince they've got all the good stuff shirts and polos activewear and fine leather goods all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. 